0: Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS, now the always entertaining Chris Zabalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson.
1: Well, by the old clock on the wall, it tells us that it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zabalero, and with me always is my good friend and buddy,
0: Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? Buddy! I'm getting choked up here, man. I'm good. Uh, I'm good. Uh, I, it's nice to hear you refer to me as buddy, uh, instead of the other pejoratives that you use when we're not recording.
1: Well, this is a family show, so <laughs> I do try to keep things a little bit on the uh, professional side. But how's your week? How things going down there in uh, Pickin, Louisiana?
0: It's good. Apparently our, our winter was, is over. I think it was scheduled for January the 4th this year. And, and, uh, now we're done with it and we're well into spring. Uh, man, the temps have been in the, in the low seventies. I think we climbed up to 80 at one point. Uh, it's just, uh, I've got so many leaves to rake and, and yard work to do. I'm, I'm dreading doing it, but before I do that, I'm going to go shoot a deer this weekend.
1: Is it still deer season down there?
0: i'm hunting a a private ranch in texas and their their game laws are a little bit uh a little bit different than than uh for public land so uh, a bunch of us are gonna gonna go on a little deer hunting expedition see if we can bring home some venison that oh, wow. nancy won't eat or cook
1: yeah i, I wouldn't do that either yeah so you got spring, and we just had an ice storm up here in Missouri, uh, so that was really kind of interesting. So our our winter is still in bloom. So congratulations to us. <laughs> but so Kelly, I think you know one of the things that we haven't done in a while is we haven't really talked about what's going on inside EMS, and we figured it'd be a good time to uh, bring some news to the folks. So uh, go ahead and give us our first story.
0: First story comes out of Victorville, California from the Victorville daily press, uh, tensions flare over California ambulance response to calls. It seems that the firefighters union there in Victorville, uh, there's San Bernardino County professional firefighters union is, uh, is having some problems with American medical response, uh, over coverage, uh, says that the, uh, the ambulances from AMR are, uh, frequently at least, uh, uh, every day, they reach level zero at least once a day. Uh, no units available, um, and they stress that you know the, they have no problems with the local medics, uh, the local AMR medics and crews. That uh, they place the blame at the foot of AMR corporate over not staffing uh, and sufficient levels. Um, and AMR responds that that this is mainly a, a problem with uh, hospital boarding and and uh, clearing clearing ambulances at the hospitals. There are bed delays. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I would hesitate to criticize because we, uh, at my agency are frequently in the same boat. We, we don't go level zero. Uh, it, that's a fairly rare thing, but rarely a day goes by when you work in the, in, in the major city that I'm, I'm near, uh, where you're not stacked up like a, like an Acadian ambulance, uh, staff meeting, uh, on the wall at one particular ER, uh, and, you know, how do you deal with that sort of thing? It's one thing, Chris, to to staff extra ambulances to, to deal with the call load. But when a typical ambulance call uh, transporting to our, our the most popular hospital uh, winds up, you know, having a time on task of, of two hours because they can't get the patient off the stretcher and into an ER bed, what do you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's a problem that's happened in a lot of, uh, you know, cities. And uh, when I was down in Fort Worth, Texas, we had a really big problem with that, with the, the, the local trauma center as well, that they were, you know, they had us, uh, you know, just waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, one of the things that you've got to think about is this is a hospital problem. This isn't an EMS problem. And we're, mm-hmm. making, we're making this into a, an EMS problem because we're allowing the folks that are uh, in the ED to dictate how long we're going to sit there and wait. If they are taking our patient reports, they should be accepting our patients. By the time we get there, there should be the opportunity for us to be able to move these patients off the stretcher and into a place where they can be taken care of. Now I have a couple of suggestions. One of the things we did down at MedStar when this happened was is we had a paramedic who would um who was maybe didn't have a partner um or who was on light duty, and we'd send them over there, and they would manage three or four stretchers, and they would give report for the patients when, that, you know, when that, those beds came open. But secondarily, you've got to get in with the administration of that hospital to say, what are you going to do to fix this problem? Because if we can't bring patients to your hospital, we're going to bring them someplace else. And just because they want to go there, as the patient advocate, we've got to say that uh, we're not going to bring the patients to you anymore and when we start we stop ambulance traffic to that hospital they're going to fix the problem as quick as they can but this isn't an EMS problem we're turning it into an EMS problem and then the challenges are going to come up that uh, we have to go level 0 or status 0 because we don't have uh, the resources available to meet the demand now the hospital is causing a challenge for the you know the folks at AMR and we've got the you know the the fire union or the local who's saying that AMR, AMR isn't doing a good job so, you know, Kelly, I, I go back to you and I say, you know, how do we address this problem? Is this an EMS problem or is this a hospital problem? And until we get in with those hospital administrators to say, what are you going to do to fix this problem? We might have to stop sending ambulance traffic to that hospital.
0: Yeah, you know, Acadian came up with a with a, a semi-workable solution to this problem some years back. As, as long as I've worked there, we have stratified uh, our patients' uh by acuity level, uh, and we have certain objective criteria that they have to meet to be a status one, a status two, a status three, or a status four patient. Uh, status one patients are your typically your hemodynamically unstable or 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 unsecure airway type of patients uh, that need a bed, uh, bed immediately. Status two are your evolving stimmies or strokes uh, and, and some proximal uh, long bone fractures and that sort of thing. And your status three and your status four patients are your typical low acuity patients that could uh, conceivably sit in the waiting room. And the way it works at our system is, is, is hospitals can divert us. Uh, If it is a status one or status two patient, the the high priority patients, and there is not the necessary uh, resources to take care of those patients. In other words, they've got uh, ER saturation. There's absolutely no bed space to put them in or uh, their CT scanners down or they don't have the necessary specialty to deal with the patient. They can divert us for that. But our status three and status four patients, which are the vast majority of our patient load, uh, can go sit in a wheelchair in a waiting room. Uh, the problem is is, is um, our bedbound patients that can 't necessarily sit in a wheelchair the patients that we've administered a medication to or, or something like that that still have to be monitored uh, are, are stacked up in the hallways. And this particular emergency department has been working on a, an ER expansion that would, would almost triple the size of the emergency department. They've been working on it for five years. I mean, they built the Pentagon in less time than it took to add 40 beds to this ER. Um, and, and in talking with the ER staff, uh, you know, um, uh, the problem seems to be uh, with the with the uh, the inpatient floors. Um, they've got patients stacked up in the in the ER that are waiting to be admitted. Um, and there's at least four hours out of every day where the floor won't take a patient. They're not going to take the patient two hours before shift change and two hours after shift change. They just flat refuse to take report. Uh, when you consider two twelve hour shifts a day, that's eight hours a day that you can't move a patient upstairs. Um, because it uh, apparently stresses out the nurses too much on the med surge floor to take a new patient. Um, so you know, yeah, it is a it's a hospital problem that that's uh, um, causing a, an undue burden on the EMS system. The question is, is is uh, how how uh, hard are you willing to push that particular issue? You know, MTALA has said that that uh, uh, boarding in the emergency department is a is a violation. That's a really you good know, how point. How well are they going to, how hard are they going to pursue that sort of thing?
1: But I think that until, until you raise your hands and you say there's a problem, you know, one mm-hmm. of the other things, I'm sure the news would love to hear that the local hospital is not able to take care of their patient load. But one of the things, I mean, Intala is, is, is very, very, uh, you know, once they get 1,000 feet from your door, they're your patient. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, they're not my patient anymore, and you can't keep them on my stretcher uh if they're belonging to you that was a really great point so you know in, in these situations when we think about tensions that are flare really i would recommend that amr and the local union get with this hospital and and, uh-huh. and fight this together and, and you know try to come up with that solution yeah. stop stop join, pointing join stop forces. pointing fingers yeah stop pointing fingers and let's fix the problem
0: so what have you got for us chris
1: you know i you know one of the things that we talk about all the time is that you know the the more education that we give people, the better that you know our population is going to be and I've got to applaud uh the Michigan governor because he signed into law that all high school students had to be taught c p r and i i gotta tell you and not only c p r but also how to use a e d And I think that this is just setting the standard for others to follow. I mean, I would think that you should be able to to learn CPR in high school, learn about AEDs in high school. There may even need to be some education on when to use 911 in high school. But how many times, Kelly, have we seen stories of, of students or young adults who have saved people with the use of CPR? And it's usually we hear these stories that they're saving people right after they learn, they learn the class. So this comes out of Holland, Michigan. And I got to say that I think that this is a best practice. You know, one of the things that I think should happen is if you're not learning it in school, you should prove – that you are CPR certified before you get a driver's license, but you I beat think, me to it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but I think the people in Michigan are setting the standards for other to, others to follow. And I got to tell you, I mean, there's only good that comes out of this, and I don't know why more states aren't following suit.
0: Well, you know, there, there's been such a law on the books in Louisiana for for years. Uh, the question, the problem is, is no one no one uh, enforces it. No one looks at it. Uh, Uh, the kids go ahead and graduate anyway, but they have to be exposed to CPR and first aid training at some point during their uh, in high school. Uh, How it's done uh, remains to be seen. Quite often the the physical education teachers teach a uh, or quite often the phys ed instructors and the coaches will teach a uh, an abbreviated first aid and CPR class. Uh, whether it actually involves putting your hands on a CPR mannequin and getting a card, uh, I've seen them uh, you know teach CPR class by slideshow, uh, and and it's not really sufficient. But I, I do like your idea uh, about um, having a, a CPR card as a prerequisite to a driver's license. I think that should be a a right of citizenship. Um, And and it is that way in, in quite a few states.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that we've got to think about is is that there's a lot of education that we could be given here. I mean, does it stop at CPR? Do we think about, you know, first aid? Do we think about bleeding control? Do we think Turning about... Tarniket's huge, yeah. Yeah, do we think about, you know, Kelly, do we think about symptoms of stroke and, and MI? Because, you know, as we now start to think about, you know, time is muscle, time is brain, whatever whatever those things that we come up mm-hmm. with that we say... The more people that we have on our side to save folks, you know, the more that we're going to see the reduction in, in these types of, of injuries. Now, you look at just recently, Carrie Fisher was on the was on the plane uh, coming back from Europe, and she suffered cardiac arrest. And there happened to be a paramedic that was on that flight that was able to deliver some care. Um, but I'm sure that there was been someone on that plane that would have been able to do CPR. I'm sure that someone would have been on that plane that would have been able to give some type of first aid, whatever that would have been. But we've got to now start to think about is everybody who's out there, if we're thinking about this whole population health thing now, Uh and, and this is where the, the mobile integrated healthcare community paramedicine, you know, world is coming from is we need to make the population more healthy, uh, or healthier. I think that the more people that know the recognition of uh, the signs and symptoms of stroke, the signs and symptoms of MI, who can do CPR, who could do some bleeding control, uh-huh. you don't need to have you don't need to have a uh, uh, you know a high tech tourniquet to stop bleeding. You know you can go ahead and use your shoelace. But uh, if you were if you were taught something, I think what it does in the end is it creates a more uh, a population that uh, maybe gets to survive a little bit more to the next holiday.
0: Yeah, well, you look at the the EMS systems that typically have the highest cardiac arrest survival rates, uh, or at least the highest survival rates for witness V fib with CPR in progress, um, which is pretty much the only one that the only uh, uh, type of arrest that people tout their numbers for. But all of those. Uh, all of those systems have a strong bystander CPR component. Right. You can put the best paramedic in the world on the truck, dual stack your paramedics, and, and give them all the bells and whistles and the toys and, and, and teach them uh, stellar pit crew CPR and all that. It does no good if your response times are long and there's no citizen CPR being done when you get there. Um, uh, as good as Seattle Kings County medic one is, uh, and as good as, as, uh, Wake County and Raleigh, Durham and, 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 uh, Minneapolis a line, of, a line of health. And, yeah. Yeah. And a line of health and all these guys that, that boast these really stellar numbers. Um, it, uh. It's really dependent upon the first couple of links in the chain of survival, that early access uh, to 911 and early uh, citizen CPR. Um, and, and those are the things that are going to make the difference between a, uh, uh, between a successful outcome and not. Uh, more often than anything else, it's, it's a matter of time and, 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 uh, and citizen CPR rather than the skill of the rescuers.
1: You know, there are even EMS agencies, Kelly, that are doing AED registration. And mm-hmm. what that's doing is, is when people are calling 911 and they're able, they're saying that, I, I think this person's in cardiac arrest or it's determined, the dispatcher is able to say, if you go three doors down, they have an AED and they're willing to share it. Go ahead and go get awesome. it. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Awesome. we use of
0: that PulsePoint app and, and other exactly. smartphone apps like that uh, are, are, you know, able to, to help us crowdsource uh, CPR and first aid. And I think that's a great thing. And, and more, uh, states, uh, and, and more of the citizenry should make use of it.
1: But again, I think we got to give kudos to Michigan because Michigan yes, is leading the way. And you know, I'd be interested to know if your state has, uh, a, a bill or a law that's passed that you have to learn, Uh, CPR in high school or you have to have CPR before you get a driver's license go ahead and comment I'd really like to know how many states have this and uh, be very very proud of it because I think you guys uh, and the folks in Michigan are setting the standard for others to follow but uh, Kelly what's what do you got for us next
0: well now we flip back to EMS agencies not working and playing well with one another Uh, let's go to Broward County Florida where the closest unit uh, response system that they've been trying to implement for 14 years now, uh, they have now abandoned again, uh, and no longer in Broward County uh, is the closest ambulance or fire truck going to be dispatched to an emergency. Uh, they had a CAD system uh, that was supposed to be set up, that regardless of your uh, of which particular city limits the, the injury or the, the accident uh, fell in, uh, that uh, the CAD would... Would dispatch the closest uh, av- available ambulance or fire uh, fire vehicle. Uh, however, that's no longer the case. Um, cities have had these agreements. Uh, the 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 Broward County voters uh, approved a, a countywide uh, dispatch system uh, in 2002. Uh, overwhelmingly approved, and they still have not put it into place. Um, each, each city is, is insisting it's waiting on the other city. Uh, and, uh, in some cases they said they're worried about, uh, they'd end up subsidizing the city next door. Uh, and this is a bunch of, uh. EMS agencies that quite frankly are, are, are not playing well in the sandbox with others you, you at some point you've got to give up something to get something uh, and and extend a little trust uh, and you, you can't wait on the other guy to uh, to be the first to, to move so you know, hopefully they can get this worked out and start serving the uh, citizens of Broward County uh, in the manner that uh, was intended when they passed the referendum uh, 14 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it really is amazing that you know, when we think about the, you know, the, the care of the citizen, that that doesn't seem to be the biggest of concern when it comes to all the finger-pointing that's going on. And, you know, when you think about our mission is to deliver the highest quality of patient care and get the best resource that we can to that patient, um, it's very, very sad when we have to hear stories as such that uh, we're going to drop this and we're not going to do it, uh, you know, the way that we've been doing it. And as you mentioned, that this was something that was put in place, uh, it was approved back in 2002. And, you know, now as we move forward in 2017, we're still having, you know, the challenges of, of getting this thing worked out. And really it has to come down to stop pointing fingers and just let's fix the problem. But uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't get it, man, and uh, I, I wish there was an easier explanation here. But uh, it, it's an interesting story, and I'd be interested to know what people think about it. But uh, uh, something that really should be concerning down there in Broward County.
0: They called in uh, Fitch and Associates to evaluate their their dispatch system, their county nine one one dispatch system, and and their conclusion was that the system as it stands now is capable of carrying out an automatic aid system. It, it, the 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 uh, infrastructure they have in place is capable of doing closest unit dispatching. Yet they're not, uh, and, and you think that. At, Fourteen years ago, this was voted on uh, and overwhelmingly supported by voters. Uh, that that the dispatch system should should ignore the 31 municipal uh, boundaries within Broward County and and dispatch the closest fire uh, or ambulance unit. Um, yet it's still not being done. And and at some point, you got to wonder as a as a uh, citizen of Broward County, do you start using words like dereliction of duty? on the part of the, the agency administrators and, and agency heads that are refusing to get with the program. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, think- I, I would hope that they demand more accountability from their EMS and fire agency uh, um, chiefs and administrators uh, to get this plan working. But
1: when you think about this, Kelly, I mean, how much of it comes down to the fact that are the citizens educated to know exactly what this means? They probably are. And how this this is going to affect them. And and we know exactly what it means because this is our business. But, you know, the people who are are living in this county, they just hope that when they have to dial 911, they're going to get the resources that they need uh, on what could be the worst day of their life. So are they really up on what this means and the impact that it could have for their, you know, for their uh, cities? Um, I got to think the answer is no, because it's the first time that this system uh, has a a challenge where they can't get to a cardiac arrest or, God forbid, a pediatric arrest that uh, I think more people are going to get involved. But it seems that as these things happen, um, it's always the citizens who are put at risk.
0: Yeah. why, Why does there have to be a tragedy? to get people to wake up. That's what annoys the heck out of me. Why does a bad outcome have to be what drives change? You know, I think that one of the reasons, uh, though, is it because... It seems to be that way, though.
1: But I think that one of the reasons is because we keep our heads in the sand until that happens. You know, it's we not a... a really sucky
0: it, job of promoting ourselves.
1: You know, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the fact that until we need it, we don't realize it. And I don't want to think about that I may have to call an ambulance one day. I don't want to have to think about I may have a heart attack one day. I don't want to have to think about... But, but, I know the processes now, and the people who are out there who are are just living their lives they, they don 't want to think about having to go to the hospital they don 't want to think about needing an ambulance but it 's the time that that occurs and Let me tell you i 've been on the receiving end of public uh, uh, backlash when our ems system wasn 't able to get there in eight minutes and fifty nine seconds, and uh, you know maybe it was a ten or an eleven minute response. But this was in the news every day. This was part of uh, city councils. This was part of uh, uh, you know uh, the medical advisory boards that you know people were coming and complaining. And um, but it's not until those things happen that uh, people are not going to people are going to stand up and say you know we're not going to tolerate this. But it's until that happens they're going to keep pointing fingers instead of fixing the problem.
0: Yeah. Hopefully we'll one day reach the, uh, reach a point where we're no longer the spare tire of public safety, you know, where you just out of sight, out of mind until you have a flat and then you're, you're screwed. Well, Chris, uh, I hate to end out the show on a somber note, but, uh, we always try to highlight the sacrifices made by our, our, uh, our brethren in the EMS fire and, and uh, law enforcement. And, uh, just recently on January the 10th, um, uh, an Acadian uh EMT, part time EMT for Acadian Ambulance, uh uh Josh Wheeler was uh struck by a vehicle off duty while he was helping crash uh, crash victims uh in Baton Rouge and when he was killed. Um Josh was, was uh struck by a vehicle that was driving the wrong way. Uh, He was returning from work when the crash happened in front of him. He stopped to render aid uh, and uh, ultimately died of his injuries. Um, This kid was, was a, uh, was well liked by everyone that worked with him and and, uh, knew him. Uh, You know, everyone has glowing things to say about what a, what a person he was. Um, And, you know, we've lost him. Hopefully his, his, uh, his family and his friends and coworkers uh, workers won't be grieving too long, and they'll, they'll be left with uh, the good memories of Josh, and um, uh, we're going to miss him.
1: Yeah, I mean, i got to say that any time that uh, we hear about, you know, the professionals in our career field who, you know, die in the, uh, whether it's on duty, whether it's off duty, um, it really becomes a challenge for us to, you know, accept that. You know, we, we like to think that we're super men and women and that we're going to live forever. And when we hear that uh, folks who are, um, you know, kind of the shining lights of our career field are dying, you know, it always has to bring your own mortality into question. And uh-huh. One of the things, you know, we certainly send our respects out to the family. And uh, I'm sure that the the time that they're having now isn't the best of times. But, you know, prayers and strength go out to those, you know, to that family. But I think one of the things that we can take from this is we really have to start thinking about our own safety when we're on scene. Uh And when it comes to, you know, uh, these types of situations, very easily you could be talking about my name, Kelly. Very easily I could be talking about your name. And we have to be able to watch out for one another and we've got to be able to make certain that we get home at the end of our shifts.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there was, Josh wasn't the only Good Samaritan killed in that, in that accident. Uh, another, uh, uh motorist, uh, Joseph Burnett, uh, was killed and, and a, th- a third Good Samaritan was injured and is in critical condition. And, and we send our hopes and prayers to, uh, uh, to his, their families as well. Um, you know, that's the best we can say of it, you know, is, is, uh, remember what they, uh, uh, the kind of people they were and, 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 the sacrifice they paid and and try to honor it with our care that we provide every day but hey that's what we think we'd like to hear what you think about uh the ems news and events we've just discussed this week so drop us a line at the show at ems1.com with your concerns comments questions and suggestions don't forget to rate us on itunes and for myself and co-host chris sabalero the sweetest smelling man in ems thanks for tuning in to inside ems we'll catch you guys next week